I had a trip of a lifetime. <clears throat> uh, all I can tell you is that uh, there is no place in the world like Israel. And I've been to many, many places, but I felt throughout the trip that the Holy Spirit was there with me at these fights. Um, and I plan on putting a group together next year, late next year, probably uh, October, November, in that area. You'll hear more about it as I put the plans. But uh, I had the, the chance to have a private guide escort me uh, in his own van uh, to these sites. Carlo was with me and Renee. Uh, and uh, he, is, he was a biblical scholar. Uh, and so he knew the New Testament and the Old Testament intimately. And so every place that we went, I had my Bible open. I had my Bible open, and I cross-referenced the exact place where we were. Uh, and there were many high points that I could say, but one of the great high points was on the Sea of Galilee. And we got to the Sea of Galilee early in the morning, uh, and we were on this small boat, and the captain who owned the boat was a, a, a Messianic Jew. And he gave us testimony that he had come to faith by being on the Sea of Galilee and being sailing where Jesus sailed. And as a result of that, he gave his heart to the Lord. And as you sail the Sea of Galilee, it's only about 13 miles long. Uh, and, and it's one of the places that looks probably exactly the way it did when Jesus was there. There's very little change along the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so as we're sailing there, uh, and reflecting on all the things that Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee, including walking on the water, uh, and all of the events in his life. But that was a central point. Uh, the captain began, and he was a professional musician as well, he sang Amazing Grace. <sighs> there wasn't a dry eye on the boat. There wasn't a dry eye on the boat. Uh, and... All I can tell you is the Holy Spirit filled that boat. I mean, really. Uh, Linda and I both said that we would never forget that. R Renee and Carlo said they would never forget that moment. It was extraordinary. And that's kind of the way this trip went. There were certain places where I felt that uh, the Spirit of God was especially poignant. We went to Emmaus. Uh, and Emmaus, you, you, you would miss it. I mean, it's like six or seven miles from Jerusalem. There's a, a turnoff on the road, and you get there, and we were there. Nobody was there. Nobody was there. Uh, it was a relic of a church that had been destroyed over the years, and, uh, but, but there was very solid uh, archaeological evidence that this was, in fact, where, where uh, Jesus uh, met those two disciples. Uh, and as you walk there and you realize that Jesus walked the six or seven miles from Jerusalem, and let me tell you something, Jesus had to be one heck of a walker. Because one of the things that impresses me about being in this tour is, uh, if you go with me next year, you better be able to walk and you better be able to climb stairs, all right? Because the tour involves walking a lot uh, and climbing a lot. Uh, and, you know, I always read that poem, Solitary Life, that said Jesus never traveled 30 miles from his homeland. That's not true. Jesus really, at some points, would have been 50 or 60 miles and he, I mean, he was all over uh, Israel. It's so many different spots. And so Emmaus was amazing. There's a, there was a crusader church there that had been destroyed. But as you walked around, a small site, not much bigger than this room. Uh, and you, you recognize that here is where he, he had dinner 
with the two disciples, broke the bread, and taught them everything about why he had been crucified and why the scriptures were written about him. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, when, you, when I told the guide, uh, he said to me, do you want to see churches? Because he would have done whatever I wanted to. I said, no, I am not interested in seeing churches. I want original biblical sites. I'm interested to see where Jesus walked. So if there's a, where Jesus walked, if there's a church there, and we have to see the church in order to experience that, fine. But I'm not interested uh, in the historical significance of churches because, frankly, most of the churches were destroyed by the Muslims uh, in the year 5-600. So pretty much most of those places don't exist. Uh, one church that does exist is the Church of the Nativity, and that's in Bethlehem. Now, I was surprised at Bethlehem because Bethlehem uh, is... Uh, under the control of the Palestinians. And, you know, they have this incredible way of getting along. Uh, and the first thing I did when I got to Israel off the plane, I said to the guide, are we going to be safe? Because, you know, the, the couple days before, rockets were being launched. And he said, don't believe CNN. He goes, it's fake news. <laughs> it's fake news. He says, that's two hours away from where you're going to be. That's not, it has nothing to do. And I have to say, I felt safer in this tour than I did when I, when I visit New York City. Really. I really. Because you see the Israeli military all over the place. All right? And, and, and they're packing guns. So it is a very safe place. Very safe place. Uh, and and uh, I, want, I want you to know that. So it's safe. But you got to be able to walk. you got to be able to climb steps. You need to be able to do those things in order to go. Uh, and so when you get to Bethlehem, uh, you know, Bethlehem is not what you, what you think about when you sing the Christmas carols. You think of little sleepy Bethlehem. <laughs> Bethlehem has about 300,000 people in it now. And so think of 300,000 people uh, all together in these tiny streets that are maybe 15 feet wide, all right? All kinds of shops, all kinds of commercialism. And, and you have to park your vehicle, if you're a Jew, outside the city wall, and the Palestinians then come and take you in their vehicles. They won't allow Jewish guides into Bethlehem, all right? So, you know, what? we parked the van, he had already arranged to have one of the Palestinian people that he's friendly with come and pick us up in their vehicle, and they drive us to the Church of Nativity. And so there you are at the Church of Nativity, and there's this gigantic line. Uh, and he, he said, this, is, this one church here, he said, is one of the only churches uh, in Israel that had not been destroyed by the Muslims. And the reason for that is when they got to this church, over the front door of the church was a fresco of the wise men. And so when, when the Muslims came in like the year 600, 700, and they saw the fresco of the wise men, they go, wait a minute, this looks like one of our churches. These are our people. And so they left it alone. I mean, they left it alone. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the good things about, about having a, uh, a guide that has, you know, some muscle and, and, and a reputation is they actually brought us to the front of the line. It was a little embarrassing, but <laughs> hey, what do I know? I'm an innocent person, you know. <laughs> so we go to the front, and here it is in this church, and you're thinking, this can't possibly this can't really be where Jesus was born. Can it really be? Uh, and all the historians indicate that from the very moment of early days, this is where all the Christians would go. And so you finally get to the front of the church, 
and there's stairs that go down into a sub-basement. And the sub-basement is about 15 feet below ground level. And what you learn is that the streets that we walk on now are not the streets that Jesus walked on. That the streets that Jesus would have walked on would have been 15 or 20 feet below. And so as we descend now down into this uh, cave, I have to bend down to get into it. Okay? I have to bend down to get into it. And there on the floor of this cave, underneath the church, is a spot with a star on it, which was the spot, the exact spot where they believed Jesus was born. And, and uh, I got down on my knees and put my, my hand on the very spot. And what was so impressive was that people were coming in from all countries throughout the world. And as they would come in, they were singing hymns. And they were bowing and praying and it was extraordinary. And so from the spot that, that he was born to the actual manger itself was about 8 to 10 feet away. And over there is this small cave carved into the rock. And there on that cave was where, where the manger was, in this most humble, humble of places. I mean, if your heart's not touched by this and to see the reaction of people from all over the world as they come in there, what an amazing sight. Really, what an amazing sight. And so there was, there was so much that, 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 I, that we saw, uh, all of the significant events of the Bible. Um, uh, and, and then the garden tomb. The garden tomb was amazing. You know, and there's two spots uh, that compete with each other as to where was exactly the place where Jesus was buried. Uh, and we know, we know from the Bible that, that he was buried near Golgotha. And Golgotha means the place of the skull. Well, I saw when I was in the, the garden tomb area, which was an area under the control of the Anglican church, uh, not the Catholic church, because they have a different spot, the Anglican church, I saw Golgotha. I actually saw the skull. You could see the skull, you know, this big skull that's maybe 15, 20 feet high in the rocks. Uh, and, you know, we think that Jesus was crucified on a hill, but, but historians tell us that that's probably not true. He was probably crucified on a main highway, all right? And the reason that they did that, that was typical of Romans. They, they crucify you on a highway so that everybody would know you don't mess with the Romans, all right? So outside, immediately outside the city wall is a main thoroughfare that existed even then, direct route to Damascus, main highway, and that's where they believed Jesus uh, was crucified. Now that's about a hundred yards from Golgotha, uh, and about uh, you know 125 yards from this garden tomb. But it was a most blessed place when we went into this garden area because it's run by the Anglican Church, and they have volunteer ministers from all over the United States now who give the tour, and it was great because in, in addition to giving the tour, they give the message of salvation. All right. I mean, tell. I mean, honestly, give the message of salvation. And so they 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 talk about the fact that this is we this tomb was discovered in the early 1900s, and why we believe it's the actual tomb. It dates back to that period of time, uh, and it and it, it, it it's typical of what the Bible says. Uh, and by the way, I had my Bible open every step of this tour, and I was constantly reading citations from the Bible. And it said there, I believe, it was in Mark that as the as the 
the disciples and Mary Magdalene went down to where the tomb is. As they put their, hair, their head into the tomb, they looked to the right to where Jesus would have been laid out. To the right, to the left was an area of preparation. That's exactly how this was. You had to bend down to get into the tomb, and then to the right, you would have been where Jesus would have been buried. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I mean, honestly, I, I just I can't begin to articulate it enough as to the impact in my life. It, it was just absolutely astonishing in every way to be able to go back and relive the Bible. I went to the Mount of Beatitudes, and at the Mount of Beatitudes, you could see exactly how Jesus would have spoken to them. It was like an amphitheater right there on the mountain, uh, and Jesus would have most likely stayed at the bottom, and they would have uh, assembled up the sides. And I actually took my Bible out and read out loud the Beatitudes. I read it out loud. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's a church there, but I wasn't interested in the church, you know? I mean, I wasn't interested in the church. I was interested in the site itself. Uh, and so when I go back, these are the kind of things that I'm going to pay attention to uh, and, and make it, I wanted to make it a pilgrimage for you as it was for me. My life will never be the same after having gone there and see and actually witness where Jesus walked. Uh, one of the incredible sights was to be on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives sits over Jerusalem, uh, and, and uh, it's up maybe 500 feet above Jerusalem. Uh, and to see the spot where Jesus, they had the spot where they're pretty sure it was, where Jesus would have taken the donkey and would have gotten on the donkey and traversed down the road into uh, the city, and where Jesus would have prayed, oh, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, you know, who stoneth the prophets, and cried for Jerusalem. I wish I could have gathered you the way a, a hen gathered her chicks. Uh, and you see the spot, and you see how Jesus would be coming down into the city, and you see the gate, the actual gate, really, that Jesus would have traversed into that. It was the eastern gate. Well, what happens to the eastern gate? It's all blocked up. Why? Because the Muslims, when they took over, have determined that that's where the Messiah is going to come in. Well, we'll fix him. We'll block it up. Really? Really? Well, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, you see the juxtaposition of, of pagans to, to not understanding what, what Christ is about. But to, to, to sit there and relive it every moment of the day. I mean, we would leave every day at 8 o'clock in the morning. We wouldn't get back touring till 5 o'clock at night. I mean, you know, day after day after day, sight after sight after sight. Uh, you know, it's just, it was amazing. Uh, it was at the site on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. The site on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee where we're going to talk about today, uh, you know, uh, uh, in terms of, of what Jesus said to, to the disciples. It was living the Bible. And so that's what my plan is, to walk through the Bible. That's the plan. And so you'll hear more about this. It's going to be open to this class and to the 11 o'clock class. I plan on taking between 80 and 90 people. I plan on doing it in two buses, luxury buses. One of the things I learned is I'm going to be picking top-quality hotels, uh, and because uh, if you're going to travel to Israel, you want to be in a really good hotel. Uh, and that's my plan. I already have one of the guides lined up. Now it'll be getting the details from the travel agent, and we'll see how that works. But that's the plan. You'll hear more about it. Uh, and uh, 
if good Lord willing, uh, I'm hopeful that you'll be able to come uh, if you can with your finances. When I asked, when I told Dan Devine that I plan on taking a troop there, that group next year, he says, "Can you afford that, John?" <laughs> no. <laughs> so he's pretty sharp, this guy. So you know, so he still had a sense of humor, but. Uh, you'll hear more about that, uh, and I, we, we took probably a thousand pictures. And so I, we're hoping that for the Christmas party this year, we'll do a display, put the pictures up and talk about it, and you'll be able to see it. But uh, once in a lifetime, once in a lifetime, life-changing, life-changing. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn to John 21. Yes, yes. Well, you know what I'll do, Marge? I'll, I'll end about five minutes early so that we have time to get cake. All right? Birthday cake for those of you who are listening. All right, John 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish. They were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus is making breakfast for the disciples. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard. Uh, and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Now, this is a very interesting uh, piece of scripture because it's operating on a metaphorical level. Because while you read it and you think about it being fish, Jesus has already explained to them that he was going to make them fishers of men. He was going to make them evangelists. And so what's going on here, Jesus is speaking really in a higher level. This this story speaks of a higher level. What it means is, what does it take for us to become fishers of men and women? What does it mean to become uh, evangelists with Jesus? And Jesus explains it here, and there's a lot for us to understand. Now, uh, this chapter, this closing chapter is juxtaposed to the first chapter in, in uh, John. And so the first chapter of John uh, was the prologue in which John told you about who Jesus was. And what you learned there was that Jesus was fully God. You understood there that Jesus was there from the beginning with God, God himself. And we understood from the prologue that everything that's created, all of the universe was created by Jesus. He was the creative agent designated by God uh, the Father. So we know that through him all things were made. So this was the the prologue preparing us for him. And it tells us in the first chapter that the light shines in the darkness, but that the darkness never truly understood it. Um, And that 
even though he made the world, even though he would walk through the world, the world itself would never accept it. He came to his own, the first chapter tells us. He came to save the Jews. He, he came to confirm everything that had been promised to Jews, and instead they walked off stage left when he came there. Uh, but it also tells us that the, to those who received him, they became the children of God. Uh, and that's who you are. You became the children of God. Why? Because the word, the logos, the power of God itself became flesh. Became flesh. Uh, and so when you see Jesus, you have seen God. You'd never be able to see God otherwise. But because of Jesus, as he walked here in this world, uh, you were able to understand exactly who God was. Uh, and so this is incredible. And so as you recognize what's happening here, the, the, the disciples doing their own thing, going out and deciding to fish, and Jesus had just told them to wait for me. Wait for me. Go to this site and wait for me. But they couldn't just wait. You know, they decided, Peter decided they would fish. And so you see what happens, really, on a higher level when we do our own thing. You do your own thing, right? And how many of us do our own thing? Even doing our own thing in spiritual veins. Meaning, well, I think God wants me to do this, he wants me to do that. Instead of waiting and relying on God, what you see here is that when you rely on your own efforts through the flesh, uh, effectively, uh, you put yourself in a, in a failure mode. And so what do we see in these verses that we see? Well, first of all, we see the assembled church. There it is, the disciples, the first church. They represent the assembled church. Secondly, you see the possibility of serving Christ, but serving him in the flesh. Not serving him in the, in the spirit, but serving him in the flesh. And what happens when you try to serve Christ in the flesh? You fail, okay? You fail. You think you can do it. You think you know what you're doing. Uh, and you're relying on your own efforts. There they are in the boat. And remember, again, this is a metaphor for evangelism, and they can't get any fish. They're there all night, and they, they can't get any fish. Uh, and so you see the futility of, of trying to serve God in the flesh, not through the Spirit. But the other lesson here is the direction of Christian work by Jesus and the blessing that follows. And so when we bow to the Word of God, when we bow to the Lord, when we submit to Christ, and ask him for direction in your life, the blessing that follows, an overwhelming blessing. They caught an incredible amount of fish. And what? The net did not break. Do you remember before in the earlier story, the net broke? But the net did not break. Now, why? Because they were relying on the Holy Spirit, on the will of God, submitting to the will of God. This is the lesson for us today, all right? The worst thing that we can do is to launch out on our own efforts without the will of God, all right? The worst thing that you can do is to step out and do something before God has confirmed that that's the will for your life. And so we need to wait, wait, and pray, and ask God for guidance and submission. Lord, is it your will? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And God will do what you see it here uh, through this example of how this works. Now, the other thing that you see, here's the importance of regular feeding upon the Word of God, because the only way you can know what God wants from your life is to feed on the Word, to read the Bible, to pray, 
What is God's word? What's his will for your life? All right? The only thing that's sadder, the only thing that's sadder from watching out and not, not doing God's will is the realization later that you should have. Right? That's, the, that's even more sad when you realize, why didn't I wait? Why didn't I wait? Uh, and then, then you see also that in this passage, the necessity for close personal discipleship for all Christians. And so here we find the disciples gathered in Galilee and not scattering as many would think. All right? Well, understand something. Just a, a couple weeks before, they were frightened. They disappeared. They were gone. But now what's happened? Because they stood in the presence of the resurrected Christ, suddenly, through the Holy Spirit, they were strengthened and emboldened, and now they gather together. Uh, and, and so uh, this is an important lesson for us. Uh, and so this, this becomes a guide to us as to how God wants us to spread the gospel. And so in this context, fishing symbolizes evangelism. This is clear. This is how John is writing this. There's one level uh, where it's actually the physical level, but there's a higher level, the spiritual level. Uh, and Peter was not thinking of this at the time. And, and if you go back at the beginning of the three-year ministry, there had been a similar instance in Luke chapter 5, uh, where Jesus raises the expectation of fishing to bringing men and women to salvation. That's how Jesus explained it to them. They were fisher, fishermen, but now he was making them fishers of men. <clears throat> and so... What I want you to understand is this, that we are in the church age. Uh, and under in the church age, and this is since uh, Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, the church is the body of Christ throughout the world. You understand that? The church, not a church, not a denomination, all right? Not a single denomination, but the church of God unified throughout the world under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Now, uh, we are unified uh, through the body of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this becomes critical. And so the Holy Spirit indwells all believers who are then sealed by God. All the wisdom and spiritual knowledge comes through Jesus Christ. There is no religious elite. Did you hear what I said? There is no religious elite. So we don't look at some person or some and say that person becomes the leader of the church. No. They're all under shepherds. Under shepherds. Uh, and, and I heard a, a good statement by one of the speakers that was here in the, the church before I left speaking about the fact that, that we often refer to a position in the church as the senior pastor. And that can become a bit of a misnomer, okay? Because here's the thing. We are all under shepherds. You understand? Under, uh, we are under shepherds. So even though we, we honor people that have a position uh, of responsibility to God, at the same time we recognize that there is no special elite. God forbid. God forbid that I would in some way elevate myself above you. God forbid, put my face in the dust. Lord, forgive me. Only you stand at the head of the church. And you see that here in the way Jesus operates with the disciples. And so look at how he operated here. 
on this day. He does three things. First, he asks a question. I love that about Jesus. Now, you know he didn't need to ask a question. Jesus needed to ask a question. He knew all things, but he asks a question. And the point of the question is to reveal the need of the disciples and their own failure. Hey, boys, how's it going? Right? How's the fishing going? How's it doing? How you been? Successful? Things good? How are you? Now, Jesus does that because he wants us to focus on our own inadequacies and our own failures. He doesn't come in and say, you're a loser. You're a bum. He rather asks the question, have you posed introspectively where you are, and then answer him. Uh, and so here, he asks the question to reveal the failure of the disciples. Now, there is a basis for this in Scripture. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> and this is the Garden of Eden. All right, look at verse 4 and 9. And, and you know that Jesus has come back. They've eaten from the tree of knowledge. Uh, and so... Uh, verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Well, you think Jesus didn't know where they were? Come on. <laughs> where are you? But why is he doing that? Again, to focus our inadequacies, our failure. Uh, and then at 11, he asked another question again. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, did Jesus know that they, that they were naked? Of course he knew. Did he know who told them? Of course he told them. Uh, and, and so he, he, he's asking these questions even though he knows the answers. That's what a good lawyer would do. All right? You ask the questions that you already know the answers to. All right? Because that's how you prove your case. Don't, uh, and, then, and then this isn't the only time where God does things like that. Uh, take a look at, at 2 Samuel. Take a look at that, 2 Samuel, where Samuel is going to confront David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Now, you know, you know this story. This is where David uh, has the affair with Bathsheba. Uh, and, and now Nathan the prophet is going to indict him for that failure. Uh, and... And so, as you read that section, just focus on, we'll start with verse 7, as he tells the story of the man who took, took the, the little sheep that was a pet and killed it. Then Nathan said to David, David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arm. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? Here's the question. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, you didn't need that question answered, but he wanted him to answer it, to look introspectively. Why did I do this to you, God? Why did I sin against you? What was wrong with me that I would do it? And that's what God does. He asks the question uh, rather than indict, but he asks the question so that we introspectively look within ourselves. Look also, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 6 uh, and see another example of God asking a question. And I think this is so poignant of our God to see how much our God loves us, that he 
It gives us the chance to repent. It gives us the chance to repent. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 6, verse 5. And you know this section is where he have, Isaiah has the vision of having unclean lips. Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Now, he knew who he was going to send. He knew he was going to send Isaiah, but he asked the question, Whom shall I send? Because he wanted him to come to repentance and understanding through submission and, and you see it there. Here I am, send me. Oh, Lord. Wow. What a God we have. What an amazing God we have. Uh, and so this becomes important to you, that we admit our failures before God, that we speak to him about, about the, the points in our life that are not within his will. And so the point of this story is not where the work is to be done, but rather it is to be done under the direction of Christ and in obedience to him, not by your own wisdom. You got that? I mean, if you leave here today not, not remembering anything else, what I want you to remember is this. You serve God through the Holy Spirit by submitting to the will of God. You don't serve God because you're smart or talented or winsome. You bow in submission to God and you wait on him all right, until he directs how you are to serve. Amen? Amen? Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the words that you've given us, this great example. Father, I ask that it resonate in our lives this, this week especially as we come closer to you and understand what your will is for us in every aspect of our life. Bless our people and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.